to Street Smart Success. This is Roger Becker, your host. Forget traditional IRAs and 401k plans with their exorbitant fees. You can accelerate your returns 10 times faster with an enhanced quality retirement plan. Today's guest, Damian Lupo, is an investment advisor who's helped get great returns for high-profile clients by navigating our onerous taxation policies. Damon is the one who created the EQRP with the goal of creating financial freedom for 1 million Americans. Today we have with us a very talented, very experienced, successful entrepreneur who has done amazing things. Uh, He currently is a financial consultant to high-profile clients, but he, before this, started and owned more than 50 different companies, including an insurance agency, precious metal firms, a VC company, a coaching and consulting firm, and more than a dozen real estate investment and development companies. And that's just a ton of stuff. Uh, with that, I welcome Damien Lupo to Street Smart Success. Hey, Roger. Thanks for having me, man. It's great to be here. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, gosh, uh, how the heck in the earth did you start over 50 companies? That's, I guess that's my first question. Well, you, you do it one at a time. I mean, I think that's, that's the first secret. And you also realize that there's, there's a time and a place and, and it can be very quickly that you, um, the time is to pull the plug. And so some of these companies lasted a matter of, you know, months and some of them lasted a decade. So there's, it, it just, and then sometimes you have overlaps. Um, one of the big, big mistakes many people make is they try to do five things simultaneous from the grass to the ground up and they, they don't get any traction. So I'll add companies on that will support the primary company as ancillary type of things like I do now with the, the, the four companies that I, um, that I run. But it's, there's also a human element, meaning other people are doing things because truly no one person is going to run four companies. You're going to have teams. You're going to have people driving those things. Okay. Well, before I go to the next logical question, I'm actually going to take a step back and go, so where did the Damien Lupo story begin? Where was Damien born and where did you grow up? All, all north, man. I'm, I'm one of those places where they're still waiting for people to, like, they only have 50% of the votes counted because it was all these villages. I was up in Alaska as a kid. And so it's, it's very, it's like a different planet. If, if I ever went to Mars, I'd probably say, hey, this is just like growing up because it's so disconnected from everything. So, I mean, I started in Montana and, and grew up in Alaska and truly was chased by, by moose and had to dodge polar bears because they will eat you if they catch you. And that was part of my experience, literally being the prey. And, and it's, it's, I don't think most people really get that. I think sometimes people think that if they make a mistake, because we're taught not to make mistakes, that something's going to eat them. And I laugh and I go, if I made a mistake working in the Arctic Circle, I literally could have been eaten. What you're going to be eaten by is a mistake where somebody's going to laugh at you. You're basically just a snowflake and you don't know how to take a little punch to the nose. It's, it's not that big of a deal. You're not going to be eaten by anything. <laughs> okay. Oh my goodness. Now that, that is, uh, that, that's something to really think about when one is in fear. So why were your folks in Montana and then Alaska? I think they always just really wanted to be far away from the city. And so dad grew up in, in New York City and Montana was pretty far away, but I guess it wasn't far enough. Sometimes you just have to go to the edge of the earth and, and then you're, you're done because you can't go any further. And so they just wanted to be up there. And, and Alaska sort of calls you and then either you love it or you, or you leave. When you're a kid, you don't have a choice. You just sort of deal with it. But then as time goes on, you decide, okay, I actually want to have a little bit more civilization. 
but pretty pretty special place to to be and and to live. Uh, ironically, they're having a pretty rough time even before the the COVID thing, and it's it's because the economy is pretty narrow. It's like FedEx and oil because they're a major stopping point for for Chinese deliveries and all the stuff that's being shipped from China to the U.S. is basically going through Anchorage now, and uh, so that's helped. But it's again, it's a, a weird place to live. Uh, it's it's a really cool place to be from. Um, I, I don't know that I would ever want to live there again because it's just, it's another, another world. You know, we went on, uh, and I don't even want to go into why, and it's not that interesting, but we were on a cruise, my, uh, wife and I and our younger son, not this past summer, but the summer before, and all the images of what being on a luxury cruise would be held true where there are a lot of people. And I don't want to be sound too arrogant, but a lot of overweight people from the Midwest, um, kind of thing. And we did stop in um, Anchorage and et cetera, et cetera. But I get what you're saying. Well, so your dad's from New York City. So uh, which borough? I am the Bronx, like real nice place out there back in the in the 40s and 50s. I'm sure it was a it was probably a little rough, a little, a little different. I mean, it might be rough now with, with riots or whatever else is going on. But back then it was it was definitely a really rough place to be and very, very poor. So totally different experience. I mean, literally keeping the, the oven open to have enough heat to not freeze to death in the winter. I mean, that's, it's almost homeless. It was like the, the edge of homeless. Wow. And, and where was your mom from? Little town in Montana. And, you know, just a, a little, little farm in town, totally op- like literally as opposite as it could get, you know, thousand, 10,000 people, maybe, maybe there's 2000, hardly anybody versus millions in New York. So how on earth did they meet? And the place everybody meet, well, used to meet college. You know, they find each other in college and, and uh, it kind of just went from there. Which college? Uh, a place called Montana State in, in Bozeman, which is now, I think it's it's basically a California university with all the Californians that have moved into into that area. I see. Wait, I told you before we were going to talk, I asked these questions because I'm a curious guy. So your dad grows up in the Bronx, super poor, 40s, 50s, and winds up at Montana State? Yeah, different. You know, I, I think that's it. Something's called it just because you're born somewhere doesn't mean you have to stay there. And and I think that was just what really called him. And you know, it's like I, I was I was raised in Alaska, and I ended up going to live in places like Austin. So very different. Just we're we're called or or we're driven to go there, and that's that's where he resonated. Wow. Okay. And then what did they do professionally? I think you know, kind of typical, you know, government, uh, military, and and school stuff. So he was he was a lifetime military guy, which I think. You know, coming from a place of poverty, it's it seems like a pretty good stepping stone because you, you create some security pretty fast, and that's where he stayed for a long time until he retired. So he was a military guy, and then yeah. where did you go to college? I went to a few different places. I uh, mean, from Portland to New Mexico, I went to the University of Phoenix, and then eventually I did a little bit of time. And when I say a little, I went to the University of Texas in Austin for forty-five minutes. That's how long it lasted before I ran off the campus because I realized it was being run by a bunch of communists. <laughs> okay shortest uh, collegiate experience in history it was what it was one class it was the introductory class i went in and by the end of it i said i got to get out of here because they were they were indoctrinating the kids it was a it was i was 30 when i was there and it was it, it really a profound thing to think about because we're seeing it everywhere in society now with the socialism that's being pushed back then the teacher asked the question, "What? what's the purpose of government? And of course, people had answers. And, and I was sitting there thinking, this is going to be interesting. This teacher is younger than I am. What is she going to say about this with her PhD? And she said, okay, well, those are all interesting answers. But the purpose of government is to figure out what resources are to be produced, collected, uh, mined, whatever, and, and then how to 
take those resources, make them into things, and then distribute them a- a- amongst society. And everybody's taking notes. And I was listening, going, "You're you're a Marxist. This is literally Marxism." I thought that was BS that was just talked about, but this is actually happening. And that's in our system systemically where it's just a brainwashing that's happening. And so I I said, "Okay, I am not meant to be here. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm meant to go solve problems, not become part of the problem." I mean, if I if I continued down that path, maybe I'd become one of these Bernie Sanders guys at, at this point, you know, going out there telling everybody that everything should be free. Uh, it's a good chance. Yeah. So where did you go to school in Portland? Uh, University of Portland, little uh, little school on the on the bluff, which is uh, interestingly enough, after I went there about ten years later, it turns out that it was they they were on, in a race to be as expensive as Harvard, and their the tuition actually hit the same number. And I thought this is crazy. So when we think about some of the problems with school costing too much, it was I, I was in one of those schools that was basically bankrupting you unless you came from you know a decamillionaire type of family. I thought University of Portland was a Catholic school. Yeah, it's a little Jesuit school, um, and it's and it, but it's private and it's incredibly expensive. <laughs> and then, so I don't know the chronology, but I, I caught you went to the University of Phoenix. I, well, I did. I mean, I, I, as much as you go to the University of Phoenix, I, I did it both physically for a couple of classes and then online. And it was it was one of those experiences where I learned. It's, it's amazing to me that there's so much backlash towards online schools. And I laugh. And I go, this isn't against those. It's it's trying to protect these monopolies that are systems that are basically just feeding on cheap debt. And and University of Phoenix was providing a service for people that you know wanted to do something. Um, so I, I got value out of it. I I no complaints. I spent a bunch of money, and um, that was just one of my one of my schools. Ultimately, the schools didn't do a whole lot in terms of preparing me for anything. They just built up some debt that I paid off, and and I had some experiences. The New Mexico one I actually got thrown out of because I started a bookstore and, on, on campus and put the other bookstore out of business, and the the uh, president got pissed off about it. So it's, people are so sensitive. They're, you know, everybody's got their feelings all wound up in a ball, and and, and they seriously can't they can't deal with anything. It's like they they truly are overly sensitive, and it's and you see this in things like the participation trophies and. And I, I saw a thing on on Twitter where where Kamala Harris talked about uh, equality and equity, and and I was like, I haven't really heard this before. And then I realized she wants everybody to be the same. So no matter how hard you work, you're all getting to the same place. And I said that is literally communism. That is communism, and uh, you know, regardless of what one's take is, is where we are as a society at this point. I'd still much rather live here than uh, in Russia myself. Yeah, although some of these places are going to be coming, they seem like they're shifting in a different direction, more towards capitalism. But they, I mean, there's there's still so much just government expansion, and that's the thing that I think people should be concerned about more than a D or an R. It's it's about just the size of the Leviathan, this giant entity that just sucks our liberties because it has to. That's the nature of government; it has to be in control and it feeds off people. It's like the damn Matrix. <sighs> this is the progression that you're describing. So here's my question. Post-college, uh, what was the last school that you went to? UT was the last one that I went to. That was that was when I was around 30. And I, I went there thinking this would be a great thing to put on my resume. Ironically, I thought it was a good idea because I was thinking I'd go into politics. And I wanted to have a degree to be able to say I had a degree and, and then maybe get a PhD in economics. And what I realized is most of the PhDs in economics, they're, I mean, their PhD stands for poor, helpless, and desperate. And so it's it's not really anything that I... I, I strive for anymore. I think most of those people are, are quite frankly idiots. I mean, there's a thousand PhDs running the Fed and they're basically just figuring out how to rip people off with our fake money system. So thankfully, I did not go down that path. And when I went into politics to help a campaign, I realized within six months, not only did I not want to do it, 
in terms of going into politics, but I wasn't very good at being an employee and I got fired as a volunteer. So just a lot of learning there. It all worked itself out. You know, I, I heard a different definition of PhD piled high and deep. Yeah, it's, it's, it's accurate. It's definitely not. I, I think it's interesting because people say, well, this means you're really smart or you've had a thesis. And I go, yes, Google's smart too. It has all, it has way more information than you do. So what's the real value in having a lot of information? None. Having wisdom is totally different. And that's what happens when you actually go through things. You get muddy, you get bloody, you have scar tissue. And people think it's just about what you know. It's not what you know. It's how, how you adapt, especially now as, as technology is disrupting everything. What you know is irrelevant in five years. True, true, true words. What then did you do? What was your first after getting fired as a volunteer, which I just love that. I got fired as a, in a bunch of jobs as a kid. They weren't volunteer, but like minimum wage stuff. I even got fired by uh, my next door neighbor at one point just because I didn't want to show up. But anyway, what did you do? Like, what was your first venture out of after you left UT? So I was doing ventures while while I was in the original school. When I went to college the first time, I was uh, back in in the mid nineties. I went. This is in in Portland, and I went to one of these these deals. It was like a free evening information event, and I, I signed up for some businesses where I was selling college. And I was like college scholarship information and coupons, and so I had businesses there. I had a, I've had so many different businesses. So they start they really start when I was a kid back when I was eleven, but those were just minor. When I really started doing things, it was it was when I went into real estate, and this is this is when real estate wasn't sexy. This is when dot you know food or petfood.com was sexy, and I was doing real estate. So everybody's like, "You're an idiot! I'm going to do a dot com and be a billionaire in the next six months." And I went out and. I was just like, okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go buy some houses, these little dumb houses and make a hundred bucks a month. That was really the first thing that was serious that they got traction and is one of those ones that stuck for quite a few years. And where was that in Portland? Uh, that, so the real estate stuff was in Arizona and it ended up expanding all over the country. And then tell me the year, some mid nineties. So that, that was the real estate stuff was the two thousands. So like in 1999, it started and, and then it went through uh, the meltdown in 2008. So it was really the prime time to get in when it wasn't it wasn't the thing that was in vogue. And then it became in vogue, which is what created an unbelievable bubble because of all the cheap money. And and then, you know, the, the ride down, building up a twenty million dollar portfolio and then having it blow up and going to negative five million in twelve months is a unique experience that I really don't ever want to do again. It's funny how that works. So were you buying foreclosures or what were you doing? I was buying all sorts of stuff. I was just buying houses and becoming the bank, basically helping people to uh, buy a house from me. And you know, similar thing that the banks do, they borrow money and then they lend it out and they just have a spread in the middle. And I was just buying stuff and giving people a chance to own the homes and ended up, because of what I did, I had probably a couple hundred people that became homeowners because I, I gave them an opportunity when no lender would, would offer it because their their credit was so messed up. And so there was there was actually some some moral uh, servitude or, or something decent about it. It wasn't just the money, but ultimately because of the greed and focusing on just more about the money than anything else. It, that's I think that's what led to the the crash, at least my personal crash, not the not the global meltdown. I mean that's that's all about a central bank problem. But um, my personal event was was just not having a an appropriate why in terms of what I was doing. Were you doing uh, seller financing then? Uh huh. Yeah, a lot of seller financing. So tell me again, and I'm skipping. I had a momentary space out where I didn't get to the point where you. I think you said you lost five mil. So what exactly happened? 
so it was so over the over the course of of six seven years, I had built up a bunch of of properties and was holding them and and ended up selling a bunch off, made a bunch of money, and then decided to go and get way way bigger than I had any experience with, and so I expanded into additional states, started developing, and from two thousand seven to two thousand eight, I took a twenty million dollar portfolio and rearranged it so it, it was it went from twenty million to negative five million, so it was a twenty five million dollar swing in in uh, about a, about twelve months. So you took over a $20 million portfolio of single family homes? No, that's what I had built up. That's what I had built up over the, over the years. And it, that's, I, I took it you know, from nothing to, to 20 million. And then it went from 20 million to negative five. So didn't take something over. That's, that was my baby. That's what I'd created. And then I watched it die. First of all, uh, were they all leased owned seller financing, all the houses? There was a lot of that in the beginning. And then after I'd sold a lot of those off and people had, had yeah, I'd refinance them or things. Then I went into development. So I was doing apartments and, and condo towers and multi-million dollar house development. So there was a lot of stuff I was into after that. And and so the, the original piece actually worked pretty well. It was when I went into all sorts of things at once. And it doesn't it's not to say that you can't do really well doing something new. You're just not going to do well if you do 10 new things at once because you can't possibly focus and there's too many mistakes that will just bury you and you'll run out of money. So here's a question. So, so when you say selling them off, when you're doing, and maybe maybe they weren't all seller financing or have it, but if you're doing seller financing, then they're buying the home. Did they just are these people that did stop paying, and then you you took over the home and then sold it? Or well, a lot of them were were refinancing and cashing out. They would just you know if they were seller financing because the rates kept moving down and the values were moving up. People and when I sold stuff, I did it differently than most. I actually had a fixed price. So if somebody was was buying something from me, I was I was the bank. You know, their their number they had to pay off became smaller and smaller relative to the value. And so they ended up cashing out. Or sometimes they just sold it and and then they moved on and and I got, you know, I got exited out of the deal too. So occasionally somebody would default and then the house would get sold, but most of the people were were um, refinancing or selling them off themselves. I got it. And and so what states were you developing in? And and are you talking about like just ground up building apartment complexes, condo complexes, luxury homes? It was a variety. Um it's it's funny because there were I had bits and pieces from Oregon down to Alabama and up all the way up northeast to Maine. So they were really all over the country. And they were from from ground up, dirt up to remodeling apartments, to, um, building condo towers. It it was a little of this and a little of that. And I actually see people, some, there are guys out there that are doing that kind of stuff now and I know where they're headed. They're, they're headed for a bad, very bad place because they don't actually have their eye on the ball. They're trying to get a piece of everything instead of having any type of focus and it usually does not end very well. Fascinating though. I mean, my God, you, you start off with like single family homes there and I'm assuming it's Phoenix, but I probably shouldn't assume that. When I hear Arizona, I just assume Phoenix. Were, were they in Phoenix or were they all over? Yeah, they pretty much started off in mostly in Phoenix, but that was the, another mistake doing them too too spread out from Tucson up north. You know, and, and when you have stuff, when you first start out, you've got to be really focused because you waste a lot of time moving logistically, just moving your body between places or having to have different people that are part of whatever you're doing. And I, I don't think people get that. They go, oh, "I got a deal," and then I got another deal, but it's going to take me a day every time I move between these two deals because they're they're 200 miles apart, and that's just, that's incredibly common. So that was one of my mistakes. Instead of saying, okay, here's my neighborhood or here's my zip code or here's my one town. The reality is there's, there's however much you want, millions, billions there. It's, it's in your backyard. I mean, acres of diamonds is a real thing. That was uh, Earl Nightingale, right? Um, golly, acres of diamonds. 
you know, obviously Google knows. Um, I don't remember who, who it was. Earl was like the, the grandfather of, of all the personal development and all that stuff. So if it wasn't him, he influenced it. Yeah, he talked about it. I haven't listened. It's been a while. I literally listened to it on CD. That's how long ago it was. Uh, but I hadn't heard the term since you just said it in like many, many years. How, how many houses did you have at, at the Apex? There were, I think the, the height of it, it was around 150 houses. So you're not a guy that really sits around and waits waits for things to happen, apparently. And then you go out and you go all over the country doing these developments. Pretty impressive, regardless of whether you wound up with a negative five, just the fact that you did it. And I, I can't even imagine how much stuff you learned. And then, of course, what's so interesting, which is completely tangential, but, you know, come 09-ish, 010, you know, BlackRock comes in and creates invitation homes and buys like thousands of single family homes starting in Phoenix because they were like literally, you know, this uh, hundred grand, less than a hundred grand and you know, the banks wouldn't lend and, you know, the rents were enough to really do well on those houses. And they're, they're to this day raising more money to buy more single family homes. I, I remember thinking my model was pretty good and then really getting irritated to see BlackRock go in there and, and, uh, you know, all, all the, the black rocks and the black stones, they're just big monsters. And they, you know, the, these guys would go in and they did, they literally bought tens of thousands of houses. And what's happening is because they have access to, to capital at effectively nothing, you know, zero, one, two, three percent, they can buy stuff and then they become the ultimate uh, lord. I mean, it's like serfdom where you have the masses are, they, they can't afford to buy anything because the rate, the, you know, values get too high. And so they end up renting from these overlords that have access to a capital market that's not available to individuals. And e- even people that are fairly wealthy don't have access to that kind of money. We're talking billions and billions. So the model works. It just has to be big enough. It's it's pretty damn hard to make it work when it's when you have a handful of, of houses. It's either a few, three, four, five, ten, or hundreds. Because when you end up with 20, 30, 40, it's, it's way too time consuming and your capital expenses tend to eat you alive. And people don't really get that great experience from the from the thing but it's it's a it's not quite what you think it is in terms of wealth creation because you have to actually survive through to to create the wealth because you're really not going to make the wealth over the first five or ten years in most cases you're not going to get wealthy when you're making a couple hundred bucks uh, per home but you know the expenses are, are you know exceed that or damn near that or yeah, it's not a way to make a lot of money. It's true. No, it's, it's a definitely people have to think. Most people don't think very long term. The wealthiest people think long term. And that's one of the things I, I noticed. And I see it today where people are trying to flip things and make money, quick money. It's all about there's this urgency and anxiety instead of having a long term plan, like a 10 year plan. You can create almost anything you want. You try to do everything in a year or two. And, I, and Peter Thiel had an amazing book, Zero to One, that talks about condensing your plans. If you have a goal for three years, figure out how to do it in six months. I get the whole compressing and times and everything, but there's also a really valuable process that nature has available for us and it's called seasons. And things actually work themselves out over time if you give them seasons to do it. But we're trying to compress too many things and, and it's putting a lot of pressure and pressure doesn't end well. It tends to explode. Well, there's another thing too, as it doesn't really relate. It's a little bit too simple, but I was going to say the 10,000 hour rule, which doesn't really relate to what you're talking about, but not entirely off the mark, which is, you know, just take some time to learn how to do something. The, the 10,000 that hour that, that Malcolm Gladwell really made famous is, I think it's really relevant that if you want to, if you want to master something, if you want to 
get into a place where you are more of an expert, you get it, you've got to spend those 10,000 hours. And that's probably, I mean, if you did something full-time, that's five years straight. And realistically, for most people, if they're developing something, that's 10 or 15 years of doing something. I mean, I did that, I've done that in martial arts, I've done it in real estate. And and you do, something miraculous happens when you, when you, when you take that amount of time and do something and go through motions. You build a muscle and a muscle memory around stuff that you wouldn't do if you read a book or tried to just do something once. And I, I think most people are missing that. They don't They don't go deep. They just go wide. They bounce off of everything and they keep getting in the back of a new line every day. So something miraculous happens. In Benjamin Franklin's um, autobiography, he talks about there's nothing more powerful than constancy of purpose, in which is kind of what you're describing. To go back at the very beginning when we were talking and you talk about University of Phoenix and what you said is of particular interest to me because my primary business for many years has been the advertising business, but it took me 13 years to identify a niche and what it was is doing advertising and marketing specifically for for for-profit schools. But it took me 13 years to even identify the niche that ultimately became my path to, you know, financial security. And so you're saying you're uh, preaching to the choir. And for me, it was probably more like 20,000 hours because uh, I guess I'm in the slow class. But so what did you do, Damien, once you kind of had that, uh, you skinned your knees and wound up upside down by five mil? What was the next uh, thing that you you did? I mean, on the other side of that, there's a process of going through it. You're in a timeout box. You have to you have to nurse your wounds and 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 dissect. Otherwise, you're just going to have a repeat and you know, rinse and repeat moment. So I spent a number of years figuring out what the purpose was. I thought I that Aristotle had it right when he said the purpose of life is happiness. Until I was basically smacked in the head by a very smart guy that came to me and said, "It's not the purpose of life. The purpose of life is purpose." And sometimes that's painful. It doesn't mean you're going to be happy. It just means that's part of it. And so when I thought about that, I, I thought, okay, well, if my purpose is purpose, what is the purpose? You know, like to have a purposeful life, it's not about hedonism. It's not about consuming or pushing buttons to have stuff arrive at your door. It's, it's something different. It's, I, I realized there was that I'm a teacher and that there was, there were a lot of people that could use what I've, what I've learned and been through. And so the purpose became to break the shackles of, of a million people, their financial shackles. And that will actually, it changes the world when, when people become free and they aren't enslaved by a financial system that feeds on them every minute of their life. The purpose of life is purpose. I love it. I love it. Uh, happiness is conditional and purpose is not. And uh, as long as our happiness is based on conditions, we're never, you, you almost, you just cannot be happy other than conditionally. And so I, I get that. So tell me uh, what you're doing to uh, unshackle a million people financially. There, there's a couple of things and, and they work together. And so we can learn the rules and then we can apply the rules. And usually people do one or the other. They learn some things, but they don't do anything with it. Or they start doing things, but they're not actually learning the fundamentals. And so there's a combination of teaching people about what money is and, and how to use it to your advantage, like using debt as a weapon that is for good versus having it crush you. And the, the big primary thing is making making sure people understand how to take money out of the equation for the idea of retirement so that they're not waking up at 60 or 65 like my parents did going, oh my God, I don't have resources, I'm broke. And and so giving people control over their money, they're not stuck in the Wall Street roller coaster. They actually have choices where they can impact the change, they can they can affect it. And so we, we teach them how to do that. We provide something called the EQRP, 
which is a, a tool that I developed that gives people the power and control over that retirement money. And then ideas on what they can do so that they're not just throwing darts like a monkey and hoping that their stock goes up, which is generally people's plan. If I just keep my money in long enough, then it'll all work out. And that's delusional. I mean, it's just, especially when technology is disrupting everything and it's going to accelerate to where all these rules that we had around wealth accumulation are really going to go out the window over the next decade. So how do people do this? Tell me about EQRP. Is it certain vehicles? Is, is it a certain way of balancing a portfolio, minimizing tax liability, et cetera, et cetera? It's, it's called the Enhanced Qualified Retirement Plan. And basically what it is is a vehicle that allows you to invest. You can do it tax-free. You can build your stuff tax-free. You can keep and pull your money out tax-free. It allows you to take yourself out of the tax attack that's happening for most people. And and it just gives you the ability to invest in what you want. So if you want to invest in real estate or, or gold or stocks or startups or notes or whatever you want, it's really almost anything in the world. And so it's just it's, it's putting all the control in your hands. You get to drive the vehicle, you're in charge, and then you have this amazing shelter that you can opt out of, of paying taxes indefinitely if you want. And so is it, gosh, I'm looking for, the, I'm not a sophisticated uh, financial guy, but is it, is it essentially, God, a shell is such a poor choice of words, but it is a vehicle then that you could invest in all these different assets, but yet not have them be susceptible to being taxed as you trade in and out of them respectively and, and optimize your, your investments? Yeah, it's, I mean, they, it, what these are is it's a shelter and, and the tax code gives, there's different shelters for retirement accounts, whether it's 401ks or IRAs under section 401 or 408. You, you have Basically, these are, are places where the government incentivizes you to invest and not spend your money. And then you get incentives like not paying taxes as the stuff's growing. And with the Roth part of it, you can actually invest and not pay taxes at all when you're growing it, when you pull it out. And there's ways to, to get the money in there and not pay taxes when you get the money in as well. So truly tax-free. And it allows you to do what you want. You're not just investing in life insurance and being stuck with life insurance. If that's your thing, it's truly, you, you know, you're in charge of it. So what is the difference between a 401k or an IRA and an EQRP? So the control, the options and what you can put in, um, IRAs, one of the worst things out there, even though there's $10 trillion in them, you can't hardly put any money in. You can put $6,000 a year in per person. So that's not going to get you rich. It's just going to get you old. And then you've got a custodian that you've got to deal with and is in the middle of your stuff. So it's not really control limited things. You're going to get taxed if you invest in real estate, most likely, uh, while the money's in the IRA. 401ks typically give you mutual fund options, and they don't really give you a lot of options outside of that. With an EQRP, you can you can put up to fifty seven thousand plus per person per year into the into the plan. You can invest in almost anything you want, and you're in charge. So you don't have a custodian, an outside custodian. You're literally the one making the decisions and writing the checks. So it's about control. It's about liability protection. It's about choices. And it's about getting a lot of money in there and then growing it tax-free. And all that's available in the EQRP, whereas it's not with a 401k or an IRA. That's outstanding. So are you the guy that created the uh, EQRP? I am. Yeah, it's... It, it was a, it's, you know, like what entrepreneurs do, we find problems and we solve them. And this was, this was a problem and putting the pieces together and spending unbelievable amounts of time, years developing and writing the book, the QRP book. It was, it was all a part of the process to solving that problem. So it's, I'm pretty proud of, of doing that and being able to help people break those shackles. Now that's, that's insane. And then when were they first available? Like when was the product complete? Uh, the product's been around for around 10 years and 
And so there's, you know, there's tons and tons of people. I think, you know, there's tons of people that use it. And yet most of the population has never heard of it because we're brainwashed into the Wall Street thinking, you know, with the 401ks and the IRAs and stuff. So many, many people have, have control of their retirement money, but it's not mainstream because the Wall Street fees and the custodial fees are so big that they're very protected. And there's a lot of marketing to convince people that that's the only option. In terms of people that utilize them, are they people that, um, I guess, how do I want to ask it? So in other words, I have, you know, I have 401k, I have an IRA and the 401k is my, through my company, um, is my company, the IRA I have through a financial planner. So are EQRPs made available through financial planners or, is, or are they te- typically out of the loop and it's just a, con- you know, a direct to consumer, consumers find them on their own? It's typically direct to consumer and business owners. So they're, they're set up for people that are by themselves. They have employees. Really, it's anybody that wants to control their, their stuff. And some people will have financial advisors to help them. But this isn't really geared for somebody that wants to have a financial advisor telling you what stocks to do. Typically, what people will see sometimes people having a financial advisor that's more, more someone that look that does maybe a, a flat fee for advice and they're not selling something. And that way they can be more objective and they're not trying to jam you with a, another pile of mutual funds. They're literally saying, okay, yeah, real estate makes sense. Gold makes sense. Let's do and allocate certain portions of your portfolio to these things. So we see all sorts of different things. This is ultimately the tool. You can drive it. You can have somebody else driving it. It's really meant for people that want to drive their own vehicle and pick and choose and be responsible and are engaged. If people will ask, they'll often ask, who's it not for? And I say, well, it's, it's, it's not for the person that just wants to hand their, their money over to somebody else. I mean, you can do that with, you know, with a, an index fund. You're just really picking somebody else to choose all your investments. That's not what this is for. It's for somebody that wants to, to have the control and do something outside of that system. I think I read it's, it's a hot, you could put in 127 grand per couple. Yeah, 127,000 per person or per couple. Um, and that's if you're age 50 or, or more. And if you're, if you're under age 50, it's, it's about 100, 114, uh, for a couple. And then, you know, when you, you're talking about families that have kids, you can add more and it's another 57,000 per kid. So really there's a ton of opportunity for people to shelter a ridiculous amount of money. And this is annually? Yes. So how on earth, first of all, who did you have to convince of this? And then how did you do it? Well, the interesting thing is that this has been around and it's been part of the, the code for the, the last 46 years. It was built in, in a, with the ERISA code back in 1974. And Wall Street built a mousetrap out of that legislation that benefited them, did not benefit the people. It benefited Wall Street. It benefited companies to get rid of pension liabilities that they, they wanted to push off. And, and what happened is that was very lucrative for a lot of people. And so there's always an option. Go into the thing that makes you a ton of money or go and do something that actually serves people better. And so I said, I want to do the thing that serves people better. I would have made a lot more money if I'd gone in and started an IRA company and screwed people. But that was not interesting to me. It's not what I'm, I'm here for. So, I mean, it's been around for a long time. And it was really just applying the actual rules that were written. And, and the IRS and Congress are happy with, with things the way that they are um, in terms of what we've created. They just, nobody else wanted to go in and cut their own, you know, they didn't want to cut their own fees off. And that's what most people are protecting. They're protecting a fee system that just really hurts the consumer. So, so what is then your model? How do you derive revenue from it? So it's, it's clean and transparent with fixed things. So there's, there's a fixed fee um, to set everything up and then there's a fixed annual fee. And, and when you're talking about an annual fee for a retirement account being you know 400 bucks, it's really not significant. What's significant is that you've got the control and what most people don't realize is they're paying thousands, thousands of dollars every year and really not getting any service for it. 
It's just built into the system. So our model is simple. It's not a percentage of assets. It's just, we built it based on what we wanted, how we'd want to be treated. And after being abused by these banks like Wells Fargo and things for years, you just really say, okay, what's the opposite of what they do? Let's care for people. Let's not rob them. Let's, let's charge an appropriate amount for the service that we do. And, and everybody wins together. How many people have, have an EQRP? That's a good question. I, at this point, I've lost the number. I don't even know how many it is. There's, there's a lot. Like north of 10,000 or? Well, overall, people have different forms of, of these plans. And so I think the last number I saw it, overall in existence, there's about a half a million of them. And then, but I mean, how many through your company? Good question. I don't know what the number is off the top of my head. I, there are people now that, that actually are in control of metrics. One of the things about being an entrepreneur is you don't do everything inside of a company. And you know, when you found something, you kind of do, but then you start moving past it and it's, it changes to where if you're a one-off, you know exactly how many of the, of the Cutco knives you sold this week. But there comes a point where your company is, is doing what it, it's supposed to do and, and people know what they're supposed to know and, and you don't have to know everything. It's kind of the beauty of having a team. Do you have employees or people independent agents? Uh, there's, there's both. There's, there's a, an internal team and then there's a lot of people that are, that are part of the, the team that are external. So it's, it's, a, it's probably like most companies, depending on what people are doing. Some people, it makes more sense to have them as employees and some people are going to be more as um, partners or vendors or contractors. Got it. And how many people are on the internal team? That's a good question. I think there's about 10 right now. Got it. What you're describing is something clearly that's self-directed. How do they get quote unquote advice in terms of what to buy within these vehicles or that's just research they do on their own? Or? Yeah, that's the beauty of self-direction is, is you get to choose and you choose your sources. It's You're not being told what you have to do or, or what you should do by somebody that, that has a conflict of interest. You're really, you're, it's really up to you. So they, people can choose whatever information and advisors they want totally in their hands. You know, I'm just odd that you can put away, that you can shelter 127 grand as a couple if you're over 50. And you're saying, so if I went out and gosh, and I bought a, well, let's say I bought a apartment building for a million. Can I, and I don't know if you, you probably wouldn't shelter the, the price of the asset. I'm assuming you'd probably shelter the income off it, correct? Uh, yeah, I mean, you, you really shelter everything inside these vehicles. You, you shelter the the cash flow that comes in, and you also shelter the the appreciation if you were to end up selling that the asset. And so, then, is there a certain age where you need to liquidate them, or you can you you know what I mean? You can just do this forever. Yeah, you. I mean, you've got you've got options. There are certain required minimum distributions that are that are in place at age seventy two, but generally, that's you've got options even then to be able to move the stuff over to you know into IRAs if you want to avoid those. Wow. That is yeah. uh, mega compelling. Yeah, it's a pretty it's a pretty cool system. I mean, it's 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 a pretty great deal. Well, let me ask you this question: What questions should I be asking you? What are a couple that you're sitting there going, "Wow, this guy should have asked A, B, C, or D." I mean, really, the, the next question is is what what what's the how do I learn more about this? I mean, what, what people should be doing is is learning and, and doing their due diligence, and then figuring out if if the tools are are good for them or not. I mean, what I generally do is is have people get a copy of the book that I wrote, the QRP book. You can get that if you if you go to qrpbook.com. Just get a, a free copy and we'll send it to them. Okay, eQRP, right? It, uh, the, the website is QRP book. They can go to eqrp.co and they'll get be able to get the book. Okay, and that is uh, that is somebody's uh, first step to uh, financial freedom right there. That's exactly right. I think that's the first thing they should do. So how do you, I have to ask just because I'm a passive real estate investor and I've had some 
less than uh, stellar situations. What's your take on the real estate market right now? And I know that's a broad question, but mm-hmm. in general, we're we're in a massive bubble across basically everything except for gold and silver. I mean, almost everything is in a bubble, bond stocks, real estate, things have been bid up because of the low interest rate environment. And it's, it's going to continue because there's too much, there's, there's just too much money chasing a, a finite amount of assets. And there's a lot of dumb investors out there that think it's easy. And so I think people need to be incredibly cautious. There's, there's tons of money to be made in good deals, but I, what I see most people do doing is, is just acting like speculators that are drunk on their own, their own uh, exhaust. <laughs> just buying off the shelf deals that are just mediocre, hoping that the thing's just going to keep going. Well, I see, I see people doing things where they're investing and, and they're saying, I'm going to double the value of this thing, even though it's, it's mostly full. And I, I go, how's that going to happen? The interest rates are, it's very unlikely they're going to continue to go down. They could go into negative territory where you literally get paid to borrow money. That's possible, but they're not going to loan money to most people in that space. So I just look at these models and they're based on what's happened the previous five years, which is highly unlikely to repeat itself over the next five. So people are basically out there just, they're high. I mean, they're totally smoking their own exhaust. It's unbelievable. I, I, I think it's, I mean, ultimately it's going to end just like it did in 2008 in that people, there's going to be a reset and you're going to have assets that are going to go back to a normal space. But for the time being, people are just in this euphoric state of, of idiocy, thinking that everything goes up forever. <laughs> you know, one of the things I like about you is is you do not withhold what you're thinking. And, and, you know, because I'm interviewing you, you don't get the sense about me necessarily, but I'm the identical way. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I totally appreciate your time. And uh, I hope that uh, my listeners go your way and that you could help some people out and maybe you could be helped in at the same time. Well, I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me out here. And uh, hopefully everybody learned a little bit tonight. Yep. You got it, Damien. And uh, have a great rest of the year. All right, you too. Thank you. percent Bye. Street Smart Success.